Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Human Rights Magazine. Concern with human rights has expanded alongside activities of global corporations, especially in oil, gas, and mining, in production of clothing and footwear, and in electronics. Since the 1970s, several initiatives tried but failed to create a global standard of corporate conduct regarding human rights. In June 2011, the United Nations Human Rights Council unanimously endorsed the Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights, thus establishing the internationally accepted framework regarding business practice. In this episode, Shenfei Xue explores the dynamics of implementing human rights standards in production in China, the reality today, and the outlook for the future. I also invite you to read the accompanying article by Shenfei Shui at upstreamjournal.org. Ten years has been passed since the UN Human Rights Council endorsed the UN Guiding Principle on Business and Human Rights. Corporate social responsibility become a mainstream view that serves as a standard for company to modernize its policies. However, without a legally binding agreement, there remain major challenges as business in developing countries face difficulties seeking a balance between profitability, productivity, and social responsibility. This episode will provide a depiction of workers' lives in two Chinese corporates and some thoughts on civil society organizations' role in the implementation phase of the UNGP. An interview was conducted with a production line worker from the largest Foxconn industry located in Longhua Tao, Shenzhen. Jessica is a short-term dispatch worker at Foxconn. After she finished her two-month production line experience, she made a post on Chinese social media, saying that although I had a lot of bad experience at Foxconn, I do not regret working there. It was an experience that enriches my life. At Foxconn, most workers must work overtime to fulfill the production target. We earn very low base wage, so we must work extra hours to support ourselves. We cannot miss any overtime working opportunity, otherwise we will never get a chance to earn that overtime premium. There are around two days break in a month. We typically work for over 10 hours for the weekday and work full-time for the weekends. We get one day off for every two weeks. China's labor law states that overtime work should not be more than 36 hours per month. But Foxconn workers work overtime for 30 hours almost every week. So the company requires workers to sign a pledge to show that overtime working is voluntary to avoid legal disputes. Jessica says Foxconn uses almost a military-style management system. There is a group leader for every production line, a manager, and there is a supervisor above them. The management team hold meetings every morning. If workers are unable to fulfill the production plan, the managers will supervise us until the goal is reached. There is one person in charge for every three to four workers. The management system is very dense and efficient, but sometimes it is uncivil. Some managers are very arrogant and rude. Jessica expresses her view about the suicide and protesting case happening at Foxconn. I feel like we have been treated like machines, not human. There are sometimes small protests, but the results are unsure. 
Unlike in some other countries, the labor union in China is not part of the non-governmental sector, so it is difficult for the organization to touch upon these issues. Sometimes people discuss about the inequality in dorms, but these small complaints are unlikely to form so-called protests. We enter the factory at different time and age, and we are paid differently based on that. Experienced workers earn almost 2,000 yuan higher than us every month. They are used to the overtime working, so it is unlikely to mobilize them. After saying this, Jessica still hopes that there will be future improvements. I think there will be future changes as our society progresses and people are more aware of their rights. The future generation will help us reach that goal after China finishes its demographic transition. The interview uncovers several weaknesses that exist in the UNGP framework. First, the principle do not create a new legal obligation that allows a company to enforce. Countries like China have a legislative measure for labor-related issues, but they are often undermined and ignored by large business owners who have a greater bargaining power. Second, the UNGP assumes a robust public sphere, which many countries do not have. Third, the UNGP assumes workers are aware when they experience human rights violations, but most manufacturing workers are unclear about their rights, and they believe that the grievance mechanism is not an access for justice, but a risk of losing jobs. Small and medium-sized enterprises form the backbone of the global supply chain. The conventional understanding believes that SMEs are more deprived of resources to implement human rights policies than the larger ones. Yet, the capacity for SMEs in developing countries to address human rights issues has been underestimated. Daolong owns a B2B nanotechnology company in China. His factory produces extensive products, including fabric for bags and suitcases, protective clothing and masks, and clothes interlining. Uh, actually, uh, there are no indicator regards uh, corroborate social, respons uh, social responsibility in China. Uh, typically, when you do business in China, there are only two standards that clients take into consideration. The first one is uh, quality, and uh, the second one is cost efficiency. Uh, corroborate social responsibility is actually not a normal in China. The government has not uh, particularly stressed companies to put human rights protection in our agenda. In terms of the awareness, China's labor force is not compatible to the labor force in Western countries. In reality, many workers are not willing to pay for the insurance system. They will rather keep their cash to spend. China's social insurance system includes endowment insurance, medical insurance, unemployment insurance, employment injury insurance, maternity insurance, and housing provident fund. Daolong gave a detailed description to how it works. Both employer and employee are obligated to make contributions. Employer typically count for a large year. For those who didn't pay for the system, the government indeed is not obligated to protect their rights. This is an established fact. Almost every factory has no standard. For example, my factory is requested 
to have at least 10 workers paying. Those requirements are legally binding, and we must report the insurance payment to the government. Dalong also told us some facts about labor's working condition in his factory. We have never had any human rights disputes. Most workers have been with us for years, and we offer them complete insurance and welfare. Paying for the insurance system is depending on self-wellness. We would sometimes educate our workers about the importance of paying those insurance. And now almost everyone is willing to start paying. If there are any workers incurring occupational injuries, we will take them directly to the hospital. So they do not have to go through the complicated medical insurance system. This is an advantage of being a small cooperate. Yeah, so you know, we have been producing masks and the protective suits during the old pandemic. Our machine at the production line are fully automatic. So workers only need to be responsible for the maintenance. We provide workers masks in the workshop. We also provide subsidy to workers who cannot travel back to their own hometown during the Chinese New Year or any holidays. We also pay triple wages for those who willing work overtime during the New Year's. I think everyone in my factory has been working together for a long time. Uh, some workers uh, working with us already a decade, so our relationship is more like a family. Uh, most of Chinese, Chinese cooperates are human-based. I strongly believe uh, companies that do not show their human kindness are unable to keep the workers. It's very different from the ranger management style using many foreign cooperates. Lastly, Dalong expresses his view on large manufacturing corporates. You know, uh, compared with small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, large enterprises have more problems uh, because large enterprises have no way to control the clothing, food, housing, and uh, transportation uh, for every employee. Uh, the management team cannot know the specific information and the situation of the each employee in the time. Uh, so some employees can can get full care and uh, subside. Uh, small business like us uh, will not have such problems, I think. So what can civil society organizations do to ensure better implementation of the UNGP? An interview was conducted with Jasmine Zhang, a labor rights activist from China Labor Watch. This New York-based non-governmental organization seeks to help China's workers become more informed of their rights and more empowered to realize those rights within their communities. Because workers in China don't have the freedom to organize independent unions, and China lacks infrastructure for labor rights. At certain times and in certain places, CLW become one of the few channels that Chinese workers can make their voice heard. I would say our legitimacy mainly comes from the advocacy for workers' rights in real practical issues. We hope to empower and inspire workers to stand up for their rights and remain hopeful even in a totalitarian regime. Jasmine has never heard of the UNGP. She believes 
because many of the UN guiding principles or conventions are not very practical or useful for workers that we interact with on a daily basis. An international framework would look wonderful, but means little to help who are in desperate needs, such as an unpaid worker or a child worker who doesn't know how to protect their rights or get out of an abusive situation. I also think it is difficult to draw a fine line between the rights for profit and the greed for more profit, or between the need and wants for profits. For example, while Apple made record profit last year from products mainly manufactured in China by temporary workers with stagnant wages, little benefits under forced excessive. Over time, and with several workers died at work, there is a choice that either corporation need to make, or consumers and civil society organizations need to help them to make to protect workers. Jasmine also made a conclusion about China's issue. While many human rights issues are addressed in China's labor law, the grievance mechanism is not entirely victim-centered, especially for many temporary workers who have no rights to establish an employment relationship with the factory that they are actually working for. In many cases, such workers have no rights to pursue labor mediation or arbitration because they are not qualified as dispatch workers. Finally, she says, "I think human rights issues have either changed little or worsened in the last decades in China. The authoritarian regime and the higher degree of global neoliberalism are part of the reasons, but it's not an isolated phenomenon. You might find similar situation in many other emerging economies or even in some regions in the West. I believe it depends on how humans decide to build our community and live together." The UNGP provides guidance for the implementation of the Protect, Respect, and Remedy Framework, and offers advice to governments, business, and civil society organizations. The term used in UNGP reflects the division in the role of state actors and non-state actors. The term duty is used specifically to highlight the state should comply with international law and implement litigation processes to protect against human rights violations. While for the businesses, the term responsibility portrays corporate's role neither in legal terms nor in political terms, but as a relatively flexible moral commitment. The UNGP soft law expressions can become more effective if civil society actively participate in the field of human rights. To pressure local governments and businesses to introduce measures regarding the three pillars. For countries with a totalitarian regime, we are also expecting that international human rights activists can forge techniques and uncover the gap between principles and practices from a third-party view to create human rights norms. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.